Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. There's some damsels in the DM. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them, yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please, yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Osh. And we're here today with Eve Bradley, who is a abuse recovery mentor. Hello, Eve. Hi, everyone. Hi, Eve. Nice of you to join us today all the way from England. That's right. That's amazing. I think this is our first international guest. Are you our first British guest? British. I'll take it. Well, we want to hear all about your background and your inspiration for becoming an abuse recovery mentor. Also, um, a little bit about why you started kind of sharing advice for people on social media and all of that good information. Okay. Well, I think like most people that find themselves in this field, it's because they have experienced abuse themselves in a relationship and for me it was um, two relationships that spanned about eight and a half years Uh, the first one was a marriage and the second one was was a relationship uh, with a with a guy um, that lasted about three and a half years and he was a narcissist the second guy the first guy he was um, my husband he was an alcoholic and he was very abusive when he was drunk Um, but there wasn't quite so much emotional abuse. It was much more like intimidation abuse, whereas the narcissistic abuse was the psychological and the emotional abuse. And it was only once I came out of that relationship that I realised quite how much I'd lost my sense of self. And we had run a business together, and so I had escaped with just the clothes on my back, I had my um, eldest daughter with me, the keys to my car, my phone, and I was three months pregnant as well at the time. So I had absolutely nothing. And I just had to start right from the ground and rebuild my life. And so I dedicated so much of my time to healing and to and to growing and to trying to kind of well to recovering from what I've been through and in doing so I discovered my kind of sense of self again and I put it together with things that I'd always loved to do before like supporting people like um solving problems and and being a solution I'm such a solution like a pragmatic person like if there's a problem I want to solve it and so I kind of tied that together with my business experience with my training experience and mentoring and coaching just sort of happened for me I was dipping into different kinds of like um courses and qualifications to kind of deepen my healing and everyone I connected with I started to kind of build a network and it was just one of those things that happened step by step as I was growing this was happening as well and it was like well I'll give it a go I'm gonna try and I was connecting with so many survivors and I was doing things like um voluntary one-to-one support a lot you know I'd connect with people through the internet and then I'd watch them grow and it was just so rewarding that I decided to really make a go of it as a full-time full-time job. What were some of the things that you did to get you to that other side you know like obviously leaving is the hardest thing you can anyone Mm. do in a relationship like that Um, so one what what was the final like what gave you that courage to just pack up and go and then two what um, were things that you did to get yourself to the other side? Hmm. So um, 
The end of the relationship was about six months long. It was backwards and forwards. It was promises. It was, you know, we were going to, everything was going to change. Like I say, it was a very emotional abuse centered. So it was all this kind of like the gaslighting was happening. At first, it was my responsibility and that I was the one to blame for everything and I needed to make all the changes. And, and then we went through the kind of, it was to do with his mental health. That was a quite a long phase. And like I say, it was backwards and forwards for a long time. And all that time I was educating myself. I was trying to find the solution to whatever this problem was that was in our relationship that was causing this man to have these outbursts and to be so rage filled and be so, so, um, so sinister in the way that his personality would change. And, um, in that time, I was going backwards and forwards. And I think each time I was developing more strength, more resilience, more awareness of what was going on. And then it was, then I found out I was pregnant and it was a real, real shock. It was a surprise. Yeah. I was at a doctor's for a routine appointment and I just mentioned that I hadn't been sleeping very well. And the nurse said to me, you know, straight away, she said, well, when was your last period? And I was like, gosh I don't know and I was so stressed and I thought well I can't remember my last period because the relationship was in such a well it was in such a and my emotions were so overwhelming at the time that I knew the reason why I wasn't sleeping was because of the stress and I was kind of trying to open the conversation up with the nurse so that I could access some support but when she said that she completely threw me anyway we did the pregnancy test it was positive I thought oh my gosh what's going to happen what's you know what do I do now and then when I told him he changed he became Mr Perfect again and I was completely thrown and for three months he was Mr Perfect but then the mask slipped as it always does eventually. And it slipped and it slipped in the most horrific, traumatizing way. And I just knew I looked, I remember I looked at him and his eyes were completely black. And I remember like leaving my body and like looking back down on the situation and being like, this is not my life. This cannot be my life. I cannot do this. Not again, not after what I'd been through with my, my husband as well. I was like, this isn't it, this is not it. I'm out and I did I literally went into the kitchen I grabbed my daughter's hand and I went and I I just left and I didn't go back um I drove straight fortunately I had very uh, supportive parents so I was able to go there for a while and kind of retreat uh, whilst I worked out what on earth had been going on for the past few years I'm really curious what it's like to have kids with a narcissist and how you balance that parenting dynamic, like once you've come out of that relationship. So with my ex, he actually has nothing to do with, with our child together. He, um, the, uh, when I went no contact, eventually when, once I got out and I went no contact, I put the ball into his court essentially when it came to accessing my daughter um, and actually when I told him that I was expecting a girl uh, he he had the most awful reaction to her being a girl yeah I phoned I remember I went for the scan in in the UK we have a scan at 20 weeks and you can find out the gender of the baby and um, he said to me the night before and I'd already left and I was already great doing grey rock communication which is a very um, low-key low emotion relation uh, communication where you don't share any information other than the absolute necessities because like I say we had a business together we shared a home together so there were some logistical things that we had to sort out and so I adopted this technique, this grey rock technique. And he um, he said to me the night before, he sent me a message. I'll never forget. He says, remember, we wanted a boy. And I was like, I'm not in control of that. You know, that's ever so strange. But again, not really surprising when you go to think of like the pathology of the narcissist and the bizarre things that they do and say. And I thought, oh, that's strange. And then he also said, don't text me with the gender you have to ring me I was like I'm not I'm doing grey rock I don't want to call so it, I went to the appointment she told me I was having a girl and I phoned him and I said uh, the baby's a girl uh, it's a healthy girl 
And he said, oh, I knew it. I knew it would be a girl, another woman to ruin my life. And, you know, really, yeah, really, really started to launch into this like misogynistic rant. And I put the phone down and that's actually the last time I ever heard his voice because I never, that was it. That was the thing that made me go, right. That's no contact. I don't want this man having anything to do with my daughter and if he wants to have anything to do he'll have to take the legal steps to do that and he never has wow so he has nothing to do with her so I mean I'm fortunate in that sense that he doesn't attempt to co-parent even can you share what the business was I'm just curious that you shared the business okay so we um we basically transformed kitchens and furniture so we took old kitchen cupboard doors and we sprayed them and um put them back on so but we also we took the business to Spain as well so we had a business in Spain and a business in the UK where we where we transformed these doors yeah and furniture like do you still do that now or do I don't know no I, I I can't I will have like I've upcycled the stuff in my bedroom and in my like <laughs> living room but no I don't I don't do it now it's um I tell you what I did do in the um not long after I uh I got away I um I renovated my caravan I had a little like a little caravan and um, that was something that I did, which was so healing. It was so therapeutic. It was a project. And it actually, that kind of act, you know, that kind of um, behavior, it goes to inform my a lot of the way that I coach mentees and the programs that I do. Not necessarily go out and get a caravan or a, <laughs> or a, or a motorhome and renovate it, but that kind of having a project, having goals, having a strategy that you're working towards that is focused on you is very much something that I advocate for when it comes to going through that healing journey. I loved how you brought up that your breakup period or realizing was six months, because I Mm -hmm. feel like so many of us who have been through these abusive relationships know that it's not just like a week long. It's not just a one conversation thing. It's like, it takes a while to actually Mm -hmm. get out. And I'm curious if you have some red flags that people could be aware of or like how to start knowing that you're in this sort of tumbling phase is the way that I like to think about it yeah um so I think being able to kind of differentiate between uh, what is really what someone's saying and what someone's doing is a big uh, kind of well it's a very important part and that's often when I have conversations with people especially those that are still in relationships or are still what I would say trauma bonded which is something that I am a real um, advocate for raising awareness of the trauma bond and also solving the problem of the trauma bond and breaking could you explain that really quickly just for people so a trauma bond is formed between um two people and it's in the absence of that kind of kind compassionate gentle balanced love that we go to think of as love but in these relationships we often find people are describing being in love but there's this absence of that kindness that compassion that patience and the trauma bonds formed through this consistent kind of cycle that's experienced inside an abusive relationship and I actually um would say that the trauma band has three elements to it it has an energetic connection which is like an ethereal cord you know that kind of soulmate twin flame karmic partner all that kind of conversation around the relationship and and that energy cord is is draining one party is always being drained and we would call that through narcissistic supply um, and then you've got an emotional strand or, or, or element to the cord, which is built on cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is this feeling that we get, this tension where someone's behaviour doesn't ma- match what we believe about them. So we might have um, met one person at the beginning of our relationship and we've grown this kind of understanding of who they are and we've painted a picture of who they are in our mind and what kind of person they are, what their values are. But then when we see their behaviours or the things that they do, they just don't match this belief. And that causes a tension 
Um, and that tension, um, because it's an aesthetic emotion, it can be resolved consciously, or if we don't resolve it consciously, our subconscious will resolve it for us. And it will try to rationalize these behaviors or this difference that we're experiencing to make the tension go away. So when we're experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance, we're having this kind of internal uh, battle with our voice. Well, that's not the person that we fell in love with, but, but oh, maybe it's because he's stressed at work today, or maybe it's because he doesn't have enough money this week, or maybe it's because that guy cut him up on the motorway. You know, it could be any excuse just to make this tension go away and to try and rationalize this behavior. And that uh, doing that consistently builds this trauma bond and then the third way that the trauma bond is formed is through a physical um, connection and that is actually to do with the chemistry and the hormones and the neurotransmitters that we are experiencing inside this cycle with these behaviors so when we're in a, we're, when we're in a phase where the tension's building you know where we can notice that you know they're stressed at work or that, uh, like I say, somebody's cut them up and we can just sense the tension and we start to feel like we're walking on eggshells, but we're experiencing a lot of adrenaline, or I think you would call that noradrenaline in, in the US. And then um, you go into another phase where there is the actual outburst, where there is this period of abuse, whether that's uh, insults or whether it's a physical attack, a sexual attack. Uh, it could be um, some emotional manipulation, some undermining, some overtly financial abuse, you know, withholding money, that kind of thing. And in that phase, we're experiencing high levels of cortisol. So we've got a lot of stress that we're experiencing then. And then afterwards, when that starts to kind of calm down, we go into something called the reconciliation phase. And it's in this phase that we experience dopamine and we have to find some sort of rationalization for the behavior. And we do that through trying to anticipate or predict what's going to make everything go calm again. So even if we predict that we take responsibility, if it works, we get the dopamine. If they're going to make promises, uh, if they're going to say, oh, it won't ever happen again, then we, again, we get this shot of dopamine. And then that next uh, phase we go into is the calm phase. And this is when we experience them being the love bombing, them being the kind person. Maybe they're making the, you know, they're seeing, they're delivering on some of the promises to get flowers or be better. Or, you know, maybe they're just not as mean. Maybe they're just not as self-seeking as they are in the other three phases and basically we just keep on going around that cycle tension outburst reconcile calm tent and that um cycle of hormones that we experience during that period is highly highly addictive and we become addicted to this phase and that's that's what creates the trauma bond from a kind of chemical level as well so with all of that happening we can start to see why it takes quite so long to break free from these relationships and to really kind of get out of the fog. Oh, that's what so are some, Yeah, that is really scary. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely been in a relationship with um, a narcissist and it was very hard to get out of. For me, it probably took around six months as well for the breakup to happen. Um, just because it was that, like, I was addicted to that push and pull of the relationship, like how mm -hmm. he would you know, it would be so manipulative when we do get into fights and he'd be love bombing and then classic, you know, behaviors back where he's like abusive and all of that. So I've, I've definitely had my, uh, I won't say fair share because nobody should have that share of it, but, yeah. um, I want just, just for the listeners to, to be aware and to know what are some classic telltale signs of a narcissist from the smallest, even the smallest little sign. Yeah, so I mean, the overwhelm, the, the, the kind of the top level um, on any kind of diagnostic criteria for a narcissist is this lack of empathy, mm -hmm. this inability to put themselves into another person's shoes. And that can show up in loads of different ways. And often, like I find the ways that it shows up the most for people is, you know, like if you're in a shop, and somebody pushes in the queue or there's like there's never the offer to open the door or they want to complain when you're out at a restaurant you know these are low level kind of 
displays of having a lack of empathy for the people that are surrounding them. And those are the kind of less kind of obvious or overt displays of being, you know, unempathetic towards the rest of the, the, the kind of all the humans that we share the planet with um, and then it can get up onto some really high levels where they just don't care they might be racist they might be sexist you know overtly you know happy to kind of make it very clear that they think that they are above other people and that's coupled with that sense of grandiose and the thing with the grandiose is that's interesting is with an overt narcissist somebody who is um quite showy offy quite flash will you know think that material goods are kind of really important to them and will want to show off then the grandiose is easier to spot but with a covert narcissist they may not display those kinds of behaviors but they still have the same thoughts. They still think that they are better than everybody else that they share the planet with. It's just that they communicate that in a different way. So when they don't get what they want, they go into some like a victim kind of mode where the world is against them. It's because of their boss that they never get appreciated at work. It's because of something or someone else is doing to them, which is stopping them from being number one in whatever it is that is going on at that time and those are some really classic kind of behaviors or personality traits that we'll see in people that have this kind of sit on the narcissistic scale this is a weird question uh but is it possible for narcissists to have like different ways that they treat people in their life or will they treat everyone the same no, absolutely. They could definitely treat people differently. And I think this comes down to this, um, this kind of narcissistic supply, which is this phrase that we kind of use to describe what they are getting. And it kind of just makes us to it makes it easier for us to understand that they're fueled by other people's um, adoration, admiration, but also mm. their um, fear their anger their sense of low self-worth because whatever it is that you give they'll take and so it's perfectly plausible that they have different sources of supply for different things so they might have somebody that gives them lots of admiration and that will supply them in that way and then you've got somebody that supplies them with fear and often you'll find that's why um, narcissists will change the people that they spend time around regularly because they're not supplying them in the way that they thought they were going to. And so they discard them and replace them with some new supply. And it can be, you know, I speak to people that they will get their kind of sense of admiration or adoration, maybe at a bar with the barmaids, you know, that's where they make themselves feel good, but then they'll go home for the intimacy or they might pay for the intimacy, go home for the fear and the scaring, you know, and all of these things are happening because they essentially are absorbing the emotions of those around them because to me they're dark they're empty they're vacuous they don't have those kinds of ways to regulate emotions internally and so they feed off those around them do you think that they're aware of everything that they're doing and the way that they treat people are they aware of it or do they truly believe that like this is the right way and I'm what I'm doing mm-hmm. is like I'm a good person and I treat people it's an well. interesting it's an interesting one because I think it's a question that so many people come you know ask you know do they know what they're doing because you can't imagine that they wouldn't know what they're doing and they absolutely do know that their behaviors are hurtful they absolutely do know that people are suffering because they can see it they're not definitely not blind they can see you know if somebody is distressed is crying is begging them to stop and they still choose not to then they are making a choice to abuse somebody now whether they know that their uh, manipulation tactics are out of the ordinary and are not what everybody else is doing is up for some debate because they have this inability to empathize. So the reverse, the kind of the balance of that is that they think everybody is like them. Mm. And because they can't put themselves into everyone else's shoes, they think, well, everybody is like this. And that's where we see a lot of projection mm. because we think, 
but we're not like that. You're accusing us of something we're absolutely not like, and they can't seem to see the mirror, you know? And so I think that it's whether they're aware that their tactics are not how everybody else is operating is probably up for some debate. And they certainly um, will do things that work for them. So if it serves them, they'll do it. And it's almost like the limits to where they'll go to are just so much lower than where we would go to to get the result that we were kind of hoping for. And that's like this kind of the rules of engagement are completely different when you're dealing with a narcissist. And that's why it's just best to stay out of the game. And that's why it's no contact and get out if you can. Yeah. Have you ever had a narcissist come to you as a client? Um, interesting question because I run um, some support groups. I run some um, online support groups where we go into Zoom rooms and we um, talk and people share. So as you can imagine, they are lots of different characters that come along to those and the absolute vast majority are you know, completely there to support one another, to share their experiences and to access the compassion and the support. But every now and then we get a few characters that just don't fit into the same kinds of, they just don't fit in in the right kind of way. And it doesn't, and they often take themselves out as well. You know, there isn't, I have never had to ask anybody to leave, but (laughs) it's almost like they know that they're in the wrong environment or that it's not the place for them and they go. And one does spring to mind where I would probably make a good case for thinking (laughs) that they may have had some narcissistic traits, but no, no one's asked me to, um, to work with them, no. And I know we talked a little bit about like, what are some of the classic habits, but like, let's say that I'm in the support group or I'm like on a first date and I'm trying to avoid a relationship with a narcissist. Do you have some just like telltale, very quick signs just to like help people avoid going down this road? I think if you put a boundary up, you know, if you're ever in doubt, stick a boundary in. And it doesn't even matter if it's one that really means a lot to you. In fact, the less it means to you, the easier it will be for you to establish it, maintain it and hold it. But actually, any boundary will be pushed by a narcissist because that's part of the game to them. You know, that's finding out where they, where, where they can get to in terms of manipulation. So put a boundary up, find something that you know, you just, whether it's don't, don't send me a message after midnight, you know, simple, I'm meeting somebody new, we're chatting, don't send me a message after midnight. And if you do, I'll just delete it, or I won't reply until 10am the next day, or I won't do, I won't reply for 24 hours if you send me a message after midnight, you know, something that you can really follow through, and just see what happens, because the chances are, if that person has a lack of empathy, a lack of respect, you know, may have these kind of traits, they're going to send you a message at like a quarter after midnight, you know, just to see if you if you're holding that boundary, you know. Hmm. I have a question. They're going to want to test it. Yeah. <laughs> I have like a little case study for you. If... <laughs> just testing things out right now. If asking for um, a friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking for a friend. If um, there's someone in like a new type of relationship and they're sending a good morning text message, like let's say the girl is sending a good morning text message. She sends it every morning. She's like the first one to say good morning. And then one morning she doesn't. Um, and he says, oh, so you're not going to say good morning today. Is that a narcissist? Who, the girl or the, the, the guy? The guy who... <laughs> The guy who keeps getting good morning messages every day and one day that he doesn't get it, he is like, oh, you're too cool to send me a good morning message today. I mean, I don't know if it's enough to say that he's definitely a narcissist, needy, attempting to try. And, <laughs> Did you provide you know, a little bit more context, Sash? No, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if she's forgotten, she's forgotten. I suppose it will depend on the explanation. Maybe it would be a case of, I mean, the thing with it, 
like we are so good at trying to work out what's going on in other people's heads and what's going on and sometimes people are just doing stuff with their life that they don't want to share about they don't want to talk about it might not be sinister but we can be quite good at trying to create these kind of scenarios where we want to know what's going on and without having a really kind of open conversation with somebody we never really know Mm -hmm. well speaking of what's going on we talked a little bit about the cycle and the long period of how to get out how do you get out like how we talked a little bit about how you were able to break the cycle and you were able to get out of it how do you advise your clients to break this cycle So the first thing that we work on is the trauma bond, having an understanding of their trauma bond, because as I described, I think there were these three strands and actually everybody's a bit different as to which one is affecting them the most. So some people will be highly addicted to the hormones and it's, you know, it's so difficult then to very much like a drug addict, unless they're ready to quit, they're not going to quit. And that's the reality when it comes to the trauma bond and the hormonal cycle. And the brain will trick us into finding all sorts of ways to get that next hit. And it won't do it in an obvious way. It won't say, send them a message, ask them to meet up. It will try to trick you by reminding you of that holiday that you had. Mm. Oh, you know, And that's where it will start. And it will try and lead you to this path whereby you are eventually going to get the dopamine because it's the dopamine we all want you know the other hormones are uh, the oxytocin is enjoyable to experience definitely but it's the dopamine that drives us as humans and actually hacking your dopamine and having ways to give yourself a rush of dopamine is actually a great way to deal with a lot of mental health um, you know low-key mental health issues you know if you're having a bad day finding a way to increase your levels of dopamine will improve your mood it will improve your outlook it will make you feel better about yourself and so it's the dopamine that I focus on to with people that are still in the relationships or are coming through the trauma bond is that we do it through diet we do it through you know activities that have a reward at the end of them all to try and increase our levels of dopamine and basically distract the brain from trying to get it from what is an unhealthy source. God, now I have to worry about my cholesterol. I got to worry about my <laughs> dopamine. <laughs> dopamine's nice and easy though, because it's in a lot of the good healthy foods and yeah, keeping hydrated, keeping healthy and doing things that are rewarding. And like that can be as much as writing. One of the things that I do with everybody is just in a morning, write down- Morning a pages. Gosh. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. In a, um, it's to write, well, actually, the night before to write a list of everything that you're going to do in the morning and it's like get up brush my teeth go in the shower have some breakfast and then go and tick them off as you do them and every time you tick it off you get some dopamine that's and true that sets you up for the day I do get that I get really happy when I tick stuff off yep. yeah so just doing that is a great way to stop you from reaching for your phone or you know having those kind of those thoughts, those obsessive thoughts that are very characteristic of being in a trauma bond where you can't stop thinking about them, what they're doing, what they're saying, Mm. why they said this, why they did that. That's a very, very difficult phase of the trauma bond. And that's something that I really work with people to try and break. Again, the same with the energy cord, you know, doing things that are energy cleansing, that are positive. Um, I like to do a lot of home cleansing as well, especially if you're in a space that you shared with a toxic person, mm. because the, the the space that you live in, the house that you live in, it holds so many, so many memories, so much power, mm. so much kind of it's your supportive space. And sometimes it needs a good clear out. So that's a really powerful way to intentionally reclaim some of that space and break that bond that that's formed in there. Well, I have so much empathy for you that after you ended this marriage, that you ended up in another toxic relationship after that. But how do you advise your clients who have gone through these relationships with narcissists and abusers to love again after these traumatic situations? I think it comes down to focusing on learning to love yourself. 
first. I think it it all comes back to, you know, if you are in a space where you are really, really um, compassionate with yourself, where you are patient with yourself, where you know yourself well, then, and you know your boundaries well, then when it comes to dating again, it's quite easy because you know you know what your way your limits lie. You know what you're looking for. You know what's a, a game change, a deal breaker. You know you know these things innately because you're connected to yourself again. And after and you know very much the reason why I, I fell from one relationship into another is because I was still very lost with who I who I was at the time, what I had been through with him, and I had this guy that was promising me everything, telling me he was nothing like him, and he was right, he was nothing like him. He was so much worse. Oh God! <laughs> but I just thought, here's my knight in shining armor. This is it. He's going to help me heal. This is what it was supposed to be, and yeah, the rest is history. But. I think many, many, many women, especially, will empathise with having experienced that. And it's actually often after maybe two relationships that people think, right, okay, now I need to do some work on me as well. How long did it take you to kind of get back into the dating game again and learn how to trust, you know, men? Um, I wouldn't say I'm particularly into the dating game. I'm not, I'm not like closed off to it. Yeah. Online dating scares the life out of me. And having been in all of these lockdowns, yeah. I have never like got involved in online dating. And I just feel like it it wouldn't be the space for me to meet someone. So I'm very much about manifesting my perfect guy at the perfect yeah. time. And I'm still waiting for him to arrive, but <laughs> I'm sure he's on his way somewhere. Oh yeah. He's on his way. <laughs> well, your girls are so lucky to have you as a mom. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, let's get into our letter today. Um, I think this person could also use some of your amazing advice. I can read it Ash, unless you want to read it. Cool. No, go for it, please. Dear damsels. This letter was hard for me to write and come to terms with. I have been with my partner for over a year and the beginning of our relationship was picture perfect. Everyone would tell us how cute we were together and I didn't want to be with anyone else. He was always posting me on social media and I felt so proud for him to be my boyfriend. About six months into our relationship, he became super jealous and demanded I give him all the passwords to my social media. He started monitoring everyone who I talked to, hung out with, and how he felt like I acted with certain friends. A couple months ago, the way he spoke to me became more abusive, suggesting I couldn't live without him, that I needed him, and that I'd never find someone like him. I really am hoping this is a phase and desperately want to try to work things out with him, but I am concerned about my future with some of these habits already happening a year into us dating. Can we make this work? And if not, how do I end it? With love, my boyfriend is my boss. Eesh. no 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 <laughs> oh god <sighs> that is very very difficult one um the, the, the boyfriend being the boss that really rings for me obviously having been in that. business with my yeah. ex it really rings for me because despite being equal business partners he definitely thought he was the boss um I think the first thing that comes to mind with that letter is the phase that she's describing has been and passed. And that was the phase where he was being nice. Mm -hmm. Being mean isn't the phase. That's him. People can't really pretend mm -hmm. to be mean. It doesn't really serve us as human beings to pretend to be mean. It doesn't, not if we are truly empathetic, it's not, we know there's another way and it's the kindness at the beginning that is the false person, unfortunately. So what he's showing himself to be now is who he is. And that's the question of whether you want to be with somebody who is isolating you, who is trying to tell you how to speak to people, what to do, where to go. None of those things scream healthy, happy relationship to me. And that's what everybody deserves everybody yeah everyone deserves to have a healthy healthy happy and balanced relationship that is peaceful and calm I'm really happy that she's recognizing this now before she continues to waste more time on it because I think Absolutely. the fact that this has all happened in a year is so telling because 
I mean, people's honeymoon phases can last for a year itself, you know? Absolutely. It's interesting because I was um, talking to somebody the other day and they were saying how psychologically or behaviorally human beings can't pretend to be someone they're not for longer than three months. Oh, wow. And I thought, "Mm, I mean, I think... I can probably remember there being some flags maybe at three months, but I certainly wasn't able to recognize them or pick up on them. Maybe my intuition had a little flutter, but I definitely wasn't listening at that time. And actually I thought that would be interesting to ask more people about that Mm. three months thing. Mm. Because like you say, those honeymoon periods can last for a long time. You get attached to that, to the memory of the honeymoon phase. Like I remember Mm -hmm. I was in a very similar relationship as this girl and how she said that everyone would say that we were cute together. It was picture perfect. Like I know a lot of people who are in relationships that they claim, you know, on Instagram, it's all picture perfect. Perfect, They only talk about how perfect their relationship is. But then when you look deep into it and you see them in person, it's not but they just want people to know and to believe that this is, that's what I would do to my friends too. I would go on and on about how we're good. Our relationship's perfect. But then Mm -hmm. at home, like, you know, he's super verbally abusive and just a terrible human being. But I just wanted people to know that or to think that I was in this perfect relationship. And for honestly, for people to like envy me, I think it was more that, you know, there is an awful lot of in society, the way we're socialized is that we are pitted against each other in some way, that there is yeah. this kind of goal that we're attempting to attain when it comes to relationships. And there isn't enough talk about just being happy in each other's company, you know, being totally safe and settled and secure in one another's company and it not being about the grand gestures or the, you know, those romantic trips or you know those picture perfect moments absolutely and I completely resonate with that in fact one of my realization moments that I would track back to was um, being in a customer's house one day uh, the both of us and we were talking and they were saying oh you work together you live together all that must be difficult and I remember my ex saying oh and I do all the cooking you know and you know really bragging and I was like this is uncomfortable and weird and the customer was like oh you're like the perfect couple aren't you and I remember just thinking to myself if you knew what goes on when we get home you know you would never describe it as perfect and he was stood there lapping it off and I was thinking you don't think surely you can't think what we've got is perfect either and It was one of those moments where I think this isn't normal. This isn't right. And the perfect relationship doesn't exist. It's Mm -hmm. safe relationships. It's secure, balanced relationships that are the healthy ones. And they're not perfect because two people are never perfectly compatible. Yeah. I would say for this girl, she's asking, can we make this work? I mean, he's already threatening you, you know, with saying that can't live without me that you need me you'll never find anyone like me that's that's threatening you know that's he's threatening absolutely and that's very telling that you'll never find anybody like me it's one of the definite classic narky kind of things to say like you'll never find anyone like me and right I think when you're out of it you think thank goodness hopefully you won't but (laughs) in it it's not quite that straightforward I think the fact she's describing him as being abusive yeah she already knows you know Um, well it kind of scares me which that she's like saying this much you know because what is she not saying because it's already so brave to just say this absolutely absolutely and to have such insight and you know one thing that is really powerful is and the one thing that we have over any narcissist is a self-awareness because Mm -hmm. narcissists cannot self-reflect so even by sitting and writing this down you've been able to have the insight to reflect on what's going on you're able to uh, adopt an alternative perspective and so I would encourage you to adopt some more perspectives adopt the perspective of your mother adopt the perspective of your best friend adopt the perspective of a, a doctor or a therapist and just try and look in on the relationship from different places and then see well what would you be advising what would you be saying and especially the best friend one because one of the most powerful things to do is to become your own best friend and Mm -hmm. learn to talk to yourself as though you are a friend to yourself and just doing that is such a powerful way to 
show yourself compassion yeah and I to think... give yourself the confidence to to come away because you've almost, you've got people in your corner then Right. I think for me, uh, putting myself back into that situation, all I wanted to hear from anyone was, yes, you can make this work. Yes, he's going to change. Like you can, you know, you can turn this person around, you can change him. That's all that I wanted to hear. And if anyone said anything else other than that, I'd be like, well, no, then you're wrong. You don't know him as well as I do. Exactly. I yeah, you don't know thing. his like. You don't get it. Exactly. <laughs> he's so sweet, but it. he can do this and he does this sometimes. It's like, yeah. no. And also think, you have their voice as well. You know, they're exactly. very good at turning things. Just hypnotizing you. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. I think I would just to be blunt with um, this damsel, I would say, please do not pursue this relationship. Like he's already, you're already saying all the stuff about him, how abusive he is. It's only going to get worse. It's never going to get better, mm-hmm. to be Absolutely. honest. Um, and what what would you, how would you suggest that she should end this like what would, what is the best way for her to come out of this and end the relationship i think that you know it's very important to be mindful of the dangers that are posed when somebody tries to leave a relationship like this because this kind of personality will like we said you know the rules of engagement are so different so being able to predict their behavior thinking that we know what they might do next can often be a very dangerous place to take ourselves so ensuring her safety first and not feeling like it's dramatic to think that this person might turn physical you know all of these are indicators of somebody that's trying to control somebody through psychological means but when that doesn't work it's not it's well it's perfectly common for people to then turn to a physical attempt to restrain or control people so ensuring that you've got some sort of safe space that you've already picked out to go to should it go like that is an important thing but in terms of um, maybe finding a way to leave the relationship which doesn't provoke that kind of thing I can't you know nothing could guarantee that not happening but again I'm going to go back to boundaries put in a boundary get a consequence that if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be leaving and start to edge away through boundaries. And you can start off with, with, and often with narcissists, they'll either try and push the boundary or they sense that the game's up and they'll go and get the supply from elsewhere. And that's where we don't have enough information about whether he's got alternative supply because in those instances, they tend not to get physical. They do tend to withdraw and move to the next supply and kind of keep you on the back burner and maybe have these Hoover attempts that they come for. But yeah, it would depend very much on her personal circumstances when it comes to that. But boundaries are our best friend in all areas of life, really. Because yeah. if we don't put them up, we don't, we don't get, we don't get respect for we're not respecting ourselves if we're not enforcing our own boundaries. I think social media makes it so much worse too. Just the fact that she mentioned like how they were so cute and that he would always post her on social media. Just the Mm -hmm. fact that she has to bring it up. I think that people feel like they failed their followers because people care so much about what their presence is online. Mm -hmm. Um, that I think that we really have to separate our life and what's happening behind the scenes from what you're projecting on social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, it's not real, is it? We can put whatever we want on social media. And I mean, one thing that I um, work with a lot of ladies to do is almost change their social media a, a lot, you know, change who they're following. If people are not lighting them up, if they're not aligned to their values, to their beliefs, especially at a time when we're emotionally very vulnerable or raw, you know, it doesn't mean that these people can't come back onto your feeds at some point. But if you're in a space where you just need to focus on you, fill your feed with the kinds of things that you need to hear right now. And don't worry about what everybody else is doing with their lives for a while. And, you know, that's indicative of how fickle social media is, is that we can just choose who Mm -hmm. we want to follow and who we don't, depending on how we feel that day. And it's certainly no reflection on the people that we follow. It's a reflection Mm -hmm. on us, who we choose to who we choose to absorb kind of content from. Yeah, I think that's I'm I'm a big proponent of muting people. Oh, <laughs> yeah. same. Absolutely. 
definitely and just changing it up all the time as well going out looking for new we can get we get so used to seeing the same people and we start to paint our own picture we start to fill in the gaps of their life then you know when we've got these people maybe we watch their stories all the time and they post maybe I don't know 10 20 stories a day well our mind is putting together the in-between bits we don't know what's really happening there yeah I'm reminded of the Gabby Petito case. I don't know if you guys have had that coverage in the UK, but just that they had this perfect life on social media. And um, mm. yeah, it was just not like that behind the scenes. It's not. And it's desperate, desperately sad, the case. And, and, yeah. and I do hope that some good comes from it in terms of the conversation that we start to have around mm. this kind of relationship, this kind of abusive behavior. And also just how much protection how much victim blaming is going going on and um, how um, the services aren't well trained in being able to pick up and communicate about these kinds of experiences and hopefully we're going to take some good steps forward with that yeah yeah and the way you talk about being your own best friend I think that's so valid yeah so powerful and it's something that is difficult to do at first but once you crack it and it does it seems to happen in a moment and it's like I get it I get what I need to be for myself right now and just doing that suddenly your team doubles because you managed to got you and then you've got you supporting you as well and you know it's important that you don't take yourself too seriously as well because you know yourself the best because it's you so being that best friend where you have fun together and where you kind of make jokes with each other and you don't take yourself too seriously you don't punish yourself you know mentally when things go wrong you just sort yeah. of pick yourself up and give yourself a little hug and, and go again and that is a really really powerful way to to get through some dark times I think that's such a beautiful way to end <laughs> yeah that was wow yeah. I, I I'm gonna go out and work on that today I think oh yeah. I hope you do oh yeah <laughs> I hope we all do today everyone yeah. be your own best friend today yeah, yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us this was so powerful and so important and yeah so informative and just like that was that was really Thank you for sharing your story too. I know that's never easy. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. It's been great fun. And can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. It's a bit complicated, my name, because it's got some little smiley faces in it. So it's your.underscore.easy.underscore.life. But you can just search your easy life on Google and you'll find it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to our podcast. And please write to us with any questions, concerns, stories, or even any guests that you want to see on the podcast. And please send us your letters. We want to help you. And we want to have amazing people like Eve address what's going on in your life. Until next time. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Bye. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please, yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.